0: On today's show, I'm speaking with winery owner Katie Wilson about what it's been like breaking into the winemaking world and starting LaRue Wines as a woman in a male-dominated industry. All right, on to my personal update. Just a quick personal update, as my world is mostly dominated right now by preparing to administer the general election on November 3rd. Woohoo! Gonna be great. (laughs) Um, The other thing that I'm preparing for this week is National Novel Writing Month, or NaNoWriMo. So NaNoWriMo is actually a nonprofit whose goal is to provide the structure, community, and encouragement to help people find their voices, achieve creative goals, and build new worlds, both on and off the page. And yes, I totally stole that description from their website. (laughs) The idea behind NaNoWriMo, and I know I've mentioned this on the show before, um, but is to write 50,000 words in the month of November toward completing a book, right? So while most people work on like the first draft of a book, others split their word count between more than one project or even use the challenge as a way to write articles every day with a total accumulative word count of 50,000 words. The cool thing about NaNoWriMo is that it's a really great community of writers at all Levels from beginner to advanced, right? And these folks are really encouraging and supportive. So it's a great place for a new writer to start. They also provide some really great tools on their site to help you track your writing and sort of gamify the process by allowing you to earn badges for things like knocking out the first 5,000 words or writing several days in a row. So it's kind of nice to earn those badges and makes you want to keep writing. You can also join groups to encourage other writers. And in non-pandemic years, you could connect in person with a local writing community for or marathons of writing so many words or just getting together and having a coffee and talking about your writing. So it's just a really cool way to meet other people in the writing world as well. The best part about NaNoWriMo is that it's completely free to sign up and use all of their writing tools. So it's kind of cool. Personally, I love the Daily Word Tracker, and I've started using that even outside of the month of November to track my daily progress in writing the first draft of books. It just really helps me stay on track and complete the word count that I say I'm going to complete on a daily basis. This year, I've created a group in Nanorimo just for the Go Find Out podcast listeners. So if you've ever wanted to write a book, sign up and join my group. It's free, again, totally free. So I will drop the link in my show notes for you to join the group. But you can also just visit nanorimo.org and search the group section for Go Find Out podcast. It'll be a small group of about 20 people. So it's honestly just a really great way to get encouraged in your writing. And again, if you are totally new to this, that's completely fine. This is a fantastic way to jump into writing your first book. And if you'd rather put that 50,000 word count toward like articles or like spread them across several projects, that's totally fine too. Personally, though I'd plan to work on book two of my steamy romance series, I'm now leaning more toward writing two job seeker related books for my other persona, Evergrowth Coach. They're gonna be nonfiction, so they tend to be a little bit shorter, which is why I'm planning to do two instead of just one. So definitely check out the show notes to find the link to sign up for the Go Find Out podcast NaNoWriMo group. It'll be a group where you can find get that encouragement to write that book that you've been thinking about for years. All right, on to the interview with Katie. Today, I'm speaking with Katie Wilson, who is making waves as part of the 4% of female winemakers in California. Katie is also the owner of LaRue Wines with vineyards on the Sonoma Coast. And today, we'll be talking about her journey of starting her own winery, as well as how she gained a reputation for letting the wines speak for themselves. And now, she provides winemaking consulting services to other wineries. Welcome to the show, Katie! Thank you for having me. I'm super stoked to have you here. Someday I'm going to have to try your wines. I was like, man, I I can't get it in time before we uh, interview. So yeah, I guess we'll have to send it after. (laughs) Perfect. So can you can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I grew up on a walnut orchard in
1: the Central Valley of California. So just about an hour and a half inland from San Francisco. And so I grew up in farming. I always, you know, I learned how to drive a tractor before I learned how to drive a car. <laughs> and I, you know, my family has a small orchard. So we did everything ourselves, a lot of things ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so planting trees, pruning, taking care of care of the orchard was a part of my daily life at growing up. And so when I went to college, I knew I wanted to work in agriculture. I, that was hands down a, already... I knew it. And I so I went to Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo and started with agricultural business as my major. And my freshman year in Ag Business 101, Uh, The professor was talking about different things you could do. And when she started talking about wine, I was like, that's it. I know what I want to (laughs) do. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. And so for me, it wasn't, you know, first and foremost, it's agriculture. And that's what initially drew me to wine. But also it has a lot of creativity because you're growing something that you're going to make something out of. With walnuts, you grow them and you sell them and they just, you don't know where they go. Right. Yeah. But with wine, you're growing these grapes, you're taking care of the land, you're seeing the differences in the different parts. Of the vineyard, and then you're fermenting and you're creating something completely different out of it, and something that's alive like wine doesn't taste the same day to day. And so, for me, that was really intriguing. But then there's also a lot of chemistry involved with with wine, so you do have to have that scientific background, and there's a huge social aspect to wine as well. So all those things together really drew me in. And no two years are the same, and it's really I I started doing a double major right away, so I have a degree in wine and viticulture as well as agricultural business from Cal Poly.
0: And so it sounds like you had a very different relationship to wine than the rest of us in college. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, college yeah. years, right? Um. So so was it was it tricky to study wine while you were in college when it sounds like for the most part you were kind of underage during some of it
1: yeah for for the majority of the time where I was uh studying wine and winemaking I I was underage
0: I you know growing
1: up my parents didn't really drink wine and they didn't really drink much at all actually mm. uh now they do of thank course goodness they really love they love wine now they even built a cellar in their house <laughs> <laughs> right. That's awesome. yeah. uh, but so when I first got interested um you You know, they did like buy, you know, I have an aunt and uncle who drank a lot of wine and were really great and and kind uh, kind of would let me taste wines with them. And my parents started to let me taste wines at home, of course, with them before I was 21. But yeah, it is hard like on a daily basis in... Studying wine and not being able to drink it. We did have a class where we made wine. No. Oh. And you didn't have to be 21 to be in that class for whatever reason. <laughs> and they let <laughs> us take the bottles home at the end. Oh, wow. It was really funny. <laughs> like, what is going on? That's awesome. Uh, but yeah. So, I, but I, there's so much of wine and winemaking. There's a lot to learn about, you know, the chemistry and the growing, like, half, you know, more than half of the battle is growing the grapes themselves mm. and learning about the vineyards. And that was. Um, A a lot of of time I spent learning about that side of of the wine industry. And then when I was in college, I also, uh, when I did turn 21, I worked at a tasting room. So I worked at a tasting room in Paso Robles for two years.
0: Nice. So now when you graduated, did you go right into working in the wine industry?
1: Yes. So I was very driven. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. <laughs> so I, I had a plan that I wanted to work flip-flop harvest. So you can work two harvests per year in the northern and southern hemispheres. Oh, okay. So I started out in California, and then I went to Australia, mm. and then to, back to California, and then to New Zealand. And then back to California. And that was all in the span of just two and a half years. So oh, wow. You can really cram a lot in. It's a lot of work mm-hmm. because harvest is no joke. It's definitely back breaking intense times where you're working twelve plus hours a day, six to seven days a week for, you know, two or three months. But it's, it's my favorite time of year. I love it. It's <laughs>
0: awesome. And so you're you're not just like showing up at the end when it's time to like crush the grapes or, you know, get it ready for the actually winemaking process. You're coming in and helping to harvest? Yeah. So
1: as an as a harvest intern in the winery, mm-hmm. you actually are, you're not actually picking the grapes. Um, I, I did work while I was in college. I also worked on a vineyard where you were doing more vineyard work. Okay. But f- once I graduated, when I was working the flip-flop harvest, you actually are working in the winery. So, you, a lot of winemaking is cleaning. So, you spend a lot of time cleaning tanks, cleaning barrels, cleaning. Floors, cleaning drains, cleaning equipment—it's all a lot of cleaning. Um, and then you're doing the actual work of the winemaking in wineries that are smaller and more hands-on. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're not talking about million-case wineries that are, you know, mainly machine-operated and automated. In a more high-end wineries that are more hands-on. Cellar hands and um, harvest interns do a lot of physical work. So things aren't really automated. It's not like you can push a button and have wine move from one direction to another, from one tank to another. You have to physically connect hoses and run, operate the pump yourself. And um, you're filling barrels by, by looking in the barrel and you have your hand on the controller. You're not there's not a machine where you push a button and it fills the barrel for you. So a lot of work is very, it's very hands-on, a lot, of, like I said, a lot of cleaning, not a lot of automation. <laughs> right.
0: And so it sounds like some of the, the higher end wines are more hands-on and then some of the wines that, you know, maybe somebody such as myself who is not necessarily a wine connoisseur um, who buys like $10 wines, like those ones are going to be more automated. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So for a, you know, if you're looking at say under $20 bottles of wine mm-hmm. A lot of times, those are larger, larger companies who are producing a lot of wine all at once because mm. um, that's how they're able to make their margins. So they might have a tank that can hold, you know, like my biggest tank at my winery holds three thousand gallons, and a tank. I mean, I don't even know, like a hundred thousand. Oh my, yeah. Exist. You know, <laughs> right. it's like I'm like I I've never worked at a winery that big, and so the biggest winery I've ever worked at is about one hundred and fifty thousand cases, and that's sounds really big but it's actually considered you know kind of a small to medium uh, my my uh brother-in-law actually works for a larger wineries and um, in, in the Central Valley. And his daily life is completely different to mine. And and the amount of, you know, just how the scale of everything, you know, mm-hmm. they're processing the amount of tons in one day that I would process in an entire year or even in a few years, you know, it's, it, so it's it's very different, but it doesn't make it good or bad. Right, it's right. just different.
0: Yeah. You know? It's a very yeah. different thing. Yeah. <laughs> different scale and everything. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes sense
1: that in order to have that, price point, mm-hmm. um, you still have, you have to maximize your, your economies of scale. So you have to have big volumes.
0: Mm, yes. Yeah. And so no, as, as one of the few women in the field of winemaking, did you have a difficult time being taken, I don't know, seriously when initially getting into the industry?
1: Yeah. And, and it still happens to me to this day. Oh, no. <laughs> Um, Yeah, so it definitely is a challenge. I grew up, like I said, um, on a farm and I have two sisters and my dad has been the best dad in that he always told us that we could do whatever we wanted in life. He's like, don't let those guys tell you that you can't do something. And he would help us to like figure out, you know, sometimes you don't have the actual upper body strength to do something. Mm -hmm. So he would be like, hey, you can use leverage, you can do this, Mm -hmm. like he would show us how to do things differently. So you don't have to ask, for right. <laughs> and actually, even if you have the upper body strength, sometimes it saves your back. <laughs> so um, so I think that going, you know, and learn, knowing how to drive a forklift and all that, you know, for years and years before I actually worked in a winery, that really helped a lot. Because when I first started out there, I would, you know, sometimes be one of two women in the whole cellar. Oh or maybe the only one mm-hmm. and you know the expectation when you're with you know 15 guys is that they don't expect you to know how to do anything and they don't expect you to be able to drive a forklift mm-hmm. or do the physical work so for me it was definitely frustrating because you might have this guy from Australia who's like big and burly but's never driven a forklift in his life right. and is going to pretend like he can oh, when you actually know how to do it right. it's like ah oh. <laughs> So like one of my first harvests, we had this old dump truck from the 1940s and it was only drove on property. It didn't go on the main highway or the road, but you had to, you basically, once, once wine's done fermenting, it has, you know, the skins and the seeds and the stems and they have to get dumped to a compost pile. So everybody had to know how to drive the dump truck. So they line everybody up, everybody's watching. And the first few guys go, it's like, everybody has to learn because it stalls out pretty easily and you have to like make it dump and it's just a dry run practice there's nothing in there and the first two guys go and they stall they stall it out I'm like okay I was like the third person I was like I have to do this (laughs) this is my time to like show them I can do this so I went in I'm like I am going to do this and I Uh, went in and I went doot doot and didn't stall and everybody cheered and I was like all right now I have their respect
0: that's awesome but
1: it was like kind of ridiculous that I would have to be that in order to gain that respect but you know it's It's hopefully things will change in the future, but, you know, you've got to keep fighting for those sorts of little wins. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And hey, you're the person out there making the change. That's awesome. And so now at at what point did you start thinking that you wanted to own your own winery?
1: So actually, when I was at Cal Poly, um, everybody who goes to Cal Poly, no matter what major you have, you have to write, um, you have to do a senior project. My senior project, I decided I was going to write a business plan for a small winery. And so I wrote, I had written a business plan to start a winery back, you know, when I was 20 Mm. and I had, it was a dream. I definitely wanted to have my own, own winery, my own wine. And so I, I had written that business plan and then when everything kind of fell into place for me to start LaRue, I, I kind of took that business plan and I adapted it to be fit for what I was doing. So it's kind of from a from a young
0: age. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Do you feel like you used a lot of the stuff from that business plan? Because you didn't actually start the business till much later from when you wrote the business plan.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I actually did. I mean, I def- definitely the bones of the business plan were what is what I used. Um, and I of course had to adapt it for what I was doing, mm. but I definitely the structure and like the concepts and, and a, lot, a big part of the business plan was that it was small. Mm. I wanted to stay a small winery. I only make 500 cases a year. Um, I do most everything myself. My, my family helps out a lot. My fiance helps out a ton. I just, I've always wanted to keep it small
0: And where does the name LaRue
1: come from? So LaRue is named after my great-grandmother. Her name was Fiona LaRue. Nice. And um, she lived to be 98 years old. Oh, wow. So I knew her very well. Um, She actually even, she lived long enough to know that I was naming the winery after her. Aw. Yeah. And she always told me I could do whatever I wanted in life and to not let anybody tell you otherwise. So when I was thinking of what to call the winery, I, I decided to name it after her.
0: Nice. And so we talked that you got some, you know, pushback and negativity for being a female in the industry. Did you get any pushback for then wanting to start a winery at the age of, at the young age of 26? Yeah, you know, I I
1: think there's always people who, who say, oh, that's not going to work. Mm. I had a lot of people say, oh, that's not going to work. Oh, you're too small. Even after I was off and running and selling wine, people would tell me that, um, oh, you're never going to make money being that small. And I think that, yeah, you just kind of, for me, I I definitely surround myself with people who are not saying that to me. You know, I try to like tune out those other folks and just be like, okay, I, I'm not going to listen to that. I can be successful. I know I can do this and I have a plan. They don't know my plan. So they, right. you know, they don't, they don't know my, they don't see my books. They don't know how much work I'm doing myself um, versus, which is a huge part of why I'm able to make it work at such a small scale is like I do all my website updates myself. My mom and my sister are both CPAs, so I do all of my own accounting. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like a lot of things you can spend a lot of money on. It's It makes a big difference in the bottom line for sure. It
0: does. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was speaking with somebody else who is a business advisor, and we were talking about the same thing. That some, some things are great to outsource if you know that you're maybe not going to be great at it, but some things you can mm-hmm. learn to do yourself and survive or really thrive as a small business. Business.
1: Definitely. And I think that's that's one of the thing I, I tell people a lot too. I'm like, figure out the things you love to do and do them. And when it comes time to be able to not do something, when you're going to be able to take something off of your plate, figure out the thing you hate doing. <laughs> like, So <laughs> yes. for me, when I started out, I was doing everything because I, I needed to in order to make it work. Mm. But now, like the first thing I took off of my plate of hiring somebody is I have a, a compliance company because compliance is, with the wine industry with all the government regulations, is really a pain. So I that was the very first thing I was like, okay, I'm getting help with this.
0: Yeah, that makes <laughs> so. sense. Yeah, and that's huge. That's a really big deal. You have to be in compliance yeah. to be able to sell. Yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> kind of important. Yeah,
1: <laughs> you have to get you have to get fingerprinted. All everything. Oh it's wow. Like a lot of. Yeah, I know it's intense. That is intense. Jeez.
0: <laughs> And so what you, would you say has been your biggest challenge in winemaking or owning the winery?
1: I would say, so in winemaking, it's like every year is a challenge. Mm. There's so many things that have, you know, you, you just have to keep persevering and trusting your instincts because winemaking is like, there's so many different ways you can do things mm. and so many different opinions out there. So you kind of, for me, I, I follow my gut and I, I my goal always is to showcase the vineyard in the best, truest form of that vineyard, not to try to manipulate the wine to be how I want it to taste. Mm. So yeah, that it's challenging because, you know, the weather is not predictable and you don't know what's going to happen and every year is different. So you just have to really know how to learn how to adapt and change and roll with the punches with that. And then in owning a business, I would say like, I think the most challenging part is is, you know, always being on. Like when you own your own business, you, you're always thinking about it. It's really hard to just tune out and be like, okay, I'm going to take a day off and like not think about anything. Right. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I totally get that. Yeah,
1: so it's it's hard in that way. But I mean, but I love what I do. So that makes a huge difference in that like most of the time I don't feel like it's work. Mm. You know, there's a lot of times where it's just like, oh yeah, I need to do this, but I'm going to do it. And then, you know, that's what I do. Right. So, <laughs>
0: right. Speaking of all the things that go into, you know, the winemaking process and, you know, even just the weather and, and the land make a huge difference. Are the fires also out there in California and like the smoke, do you, do you feel that that will have any kind of effect on the flavor of the wine?
1: Yeah, it has been a very challenging year for the wine industry in Sonoma and Napa counties. We've, of course, with COVID and the shutdowns and everything were already really challenging. Um, and then we had fires and, and you know, we we expect to have fires you know with this the weather that we've been having over the past few years but none of us expected them to come so early so um, they started in the towards the end of August. So the past vintages where there have been fires um, I make mostly Pinot Noir and Chardonnay um, both for LaRue and for my clients who I make wine for I I make mostly a lot of it is earlier ripening varieties. So Pinot Noir and Chardonnay ripen typically, you know, anywhere from a month to two months before Cabernet does. Mm. So in the past years, um, I've been almost done harvesting. For LaRue, I've been completely done harvesting and all the wine is fermented in a barrel already uh. when the fires were starting because mm-hmm. they started later on in October or November. So this year, it just took, it really caught everybody off guard because... We weren't expecting to have lightning and fires in August, mm. so unfortunately, I have had a lot of vineyards that I have not picked, and I'm still uncertain if I will have any wine in 2020 for root. So it's definitely really hard, really heartbreaking. The majority of my vineyards do have crop insurance, which at least helps to cover their farming costs. But it's it so, and there are going to be some programs through the uh, USDA, the FSA, for farmers who didn't have insurance or who didn't have very good coverage to be able to get some money. But it, it's really hard. Some people are still picking and every vineyard is different. So there's some that didn't get as affected as by the smoke as others. Um, unfortunately, a lot of my vineyards were really, really in that wind direction where the smoke got them pretty, pretty mm-hmm. quickly. So it's tough. And there's not a real right or wrong answer with what to do when you're when you're in that situation. And there are a lot of people who are picking and, and their wine and um, we'll, you know, they definitely could have great wines that come out of this vintage. So it's a, it's a hard, hard year all around. There's a lot of research going on and people are really learning a lot about smoke tane and how it works and how, how it affects the grapes and everything. So hopefully we'll, we'll get more, re- even more research and hopefully we don't have to deal with a year like this again, where the fires come so early.
0: And now you, you mentioned a moment ago that you have clients that you mm-hmm. do winemaking consultation with. Did that kind of start organically or did you you kind of decide it was something that you wanted to do and kind of started putting yourself out there.
1: Yeah, I actually did decide I wanted to be a consultant. I, I knew that was kind of my dream as far as like being completely self employed and working on LaRue, but also making wine for other people. I really do love that because, like, for LaRue, it's I'm very focused, like, it's Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and it's from a very specific area of the Sonoma coast that's just about seven to ten miles from the ocean. Mm. And it's an area. I really love and I love the Pinot and Chardonnay that come out of that area so it's like this little pocket of the Sonoma coast but for my clients I'm making over 20 different varieties from all over Sonoma County and to Mendocino County and Santa Lucia Highlands and it really kind of puts everything into perspective so I'm not so one-dimensional focusing only on my own wines and I'm able to kind of it's more creativity of being able to do a lot of different wines and a lot of different styles and it, it to me it's exciting and it kind of keeps me keeps me busy <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was gonna say because you do focus on small case so f- you said 500 cases mm-hmm. do you find that if you were not doing the consulting that you would have too much downtime
1: um I don't know about that I guess I would, <laughs> I would probably fill it with something else <laughs> Be like, uh, have time to do gardening or something. <laughs> right now, I don't have much time to do much anything besides uh, making wine, but I love it, so it's lovely. Yeah, yeah, nice. <laughs>
0: So now your, your wines are currently getting scores of 95 or higher, which is awesome from the top critics. And LaRue Wines is doing well as, like we said earlier, an ultra premium brand. So what is what is really the next bar of success for you that you're kind of setting your sights on?
1: You know, I think I I really love where I'm at now. I, I love the people I make wine with now. And um, I know that all of my clients are growing. So that that's a continuing challenge because it's like more and more vineyards mm. and stuff. So I think that side of it is what will be the growth side is, is the consulting and whether it's just the clients I'm working with now growing or, or taking on uh, new wineries but um, for LaRue I, I just love like my what I'm looking forward to is really seeing you know my vineyards that I'm working with are all around 20 years old right now and like to see just even seeing how they've developed in the past 10 years because I started LaRue 10 years ago to seeing I'm looking forward to seeing how they develop in the next 10 years I think they're going to just get better and better and like just just having that connection to those vineyards and the land and being able to see what happens. Like, that's what I'm excited
0: about. Nice. And what habits do you feel that you have that have helped you to be successful in operating your winery or your consultation business?
1: So I would say, you know, it's really funny when I was homeschooled until I was in seventh grade and, you know, I really did not like it. <laughs> and And I was, you know, growing up, I was like, oh, so mad at my parents for that. But now looking back on it, being homeschooled, if you can do well in homeschool, that means that you have some self-motivation. And my mom wasn't super strict as far as being like, okay, you need to do this right now. She would kind of let us, you know, if I wanted to do spelling for the entire year, she would let me do that, Hmm. like in the month, you know, and then do math next or whatever. Right. So I think that that kind of really helped out with being self-employed and starting your own winery because so much of it is Mm -hmm. self-motivation. Because there's not anybody telling me where... Where i need to be or what i need to be doing or or even a guideline of what you should do there's so many different directions and different things you have to take care of that I think that having that kind of foundation really helped me to be that kind of self-motivated person to just get things done. I do create a lot of lists. I write things down. It definitely helps me out too because when you have so many things to remember, it's just like, ah, yes, (laughs) make lists. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And then pick away at them. I write down a whole big list of what I need to do. And then I'm like, okay, I'm going to get like three things off this list done today and just like, because it can get overwhelming as well. Like, especially when you're starting your own business, there's so many things. And I, I have a lot of friends who, who have also started their own wineries and such. And it's, it gets overwhelming and it's like, you know, just, just pick away at it. Don't, don't think about the whole picture. Like think about one thing at a time. And it really, really helps out.
0: Yeah. Do you prefer like paperless or do you have any like apps that you prefer to use? Uh, you know, for me,
1: I have, I'm, I'm, old school paper i i use scratch paper so i'm not wasting <laughs> new paper but i always have like a, a so i have a i have a binder where i i do have my clients separated and in a whole binder where i i am able to write notes and then i have just like a piece of scratch paper for my daily lists and things gotcha. so Sometimes I, I do have on, uh, some a lot of times I also just make an a email draft and I just leave it as, and I put the subject line as list mm. and I type in things there as well too. So kind of a combination of different things, but definitely I, I do like, I like the physical act of crossing something off a list.
0: Yes. <laughs> it is it is very nice to be able to do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's satisfying. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Done. And what do you think that you would have missed out on had you not started LaRue Wines?
1: Well, yeah, I think I wouldn't be as good of a winemaker as I am now. Um, I think starting LaRue and having that be having some success before I started consulting, like that kind of opened those doors a lot Mm -hmm. Um, and being able to make so many different kinds of wines. I I think it's, you know, I I don't think I would have been able to do that. I probably if I hadn't have started LaRue, I probably would have been working for one winery and and making, you know, a few different varieties. Yeah. And I think, you know, just being independent as well, like being able to make my own schedule and yeah, be self-employed. It's, it is, it can be freeing. (laughs) Yes. Yes, it can be.
0: (laughs) What advice would you give to others who are interested in starting a winery?
1: Um, I would say definitely uh, work from the ground up and try working in every aspect of the industry. I think uh, a lot of people, even when you, have gone and gotten a degree in winemaking and you don't have to have a degree to be in the wine industry, but, but even people who have gone and gotten a degree and that's, you know, that's the only experience that they've had. And they're like, okay, now I'm a winemaker. And it's like, well, you really need to learn how to do everything to really grasp the whole situation. So Mm. for me, I, I, like, I always have gone on the philosophy is like, I'm never going to ask an employee or, you know, or somebody, I'm telling what to do like I'm not going to ask them to do something that I've never done myself so that's why like I wanted to I had the experience of working in the vineyard and I know what it's like to work you know 60 hours a week with no overtime because that's the law and what the law is changing, but it was the law in California mm. and you work, you know for minimum wage. I did that for a whole season, and it was backbreaking work. and you really kind of understand the people who you're asking to do. When you're asking somebody to go through a vineyard and do something, you know what that means. Gotcha. Um, and the same as like working in the cellar and cleaning a tank and cleaning the drains and, you know, taking care of the pumice bin and all of that sort of stuff. Like, you know, when you're asking somebody to do something that you've done it and you know what the work is. Um, so and I think just it makes you a better winemaker if you know the like the whole experience and you're able to to kind of have that foundation and I think that's the best way to get into the industry as well is to you know work a harvest it's a really great you know we always need people during harvest time and we do get people some with no experience and some with a lot of experience and it's kind of you have that mix and it kind of is is great because then you know people wanting to get into the industry are able to kind of jump in that way, and you have some people with more experience who can kind of help out with them. And it's a really good um, community industry. So we definitely refer people back and forth, um, even still to uh, the southern hemisphere to wineries I worked at. I send my interns if I have if I have good interns, I'll send them down to New Zealand, you know, and vice versa. <laughs> That's awesome
0: yeah yeah and so where can we learn more about larue wines we have a website
1: LarueWines.com, l-a-r-u-e and then we have an instagram as also larue wines and we do have a facebook page as well um and you can also find us as larue wines on there too
0: (laughs) very cool and when i was looking at the page earlier it looked like i could sign up for a wine club is that right
1: yeah. So we have a wine club that we, we have two releases a year in the fall and the spring. Hmm. Um, so if you go to the website, you can see the wine club and there's also the mailing list. So if you, if you're not ready to join the club, you can join the mailing list and, and get an offering of the wines as well. We also do tastings on uh, Instagram live tastings that we've done and we've actually pinned them to our Instagram page. So we have some on our IGTV, you can go back and kind of watch us tasting and talking about the different wines. Um, My fiance David and I have done that and we have different guests on. So it's really fun. We have, you know, different sommeliers or some of our vineyard owners have been on. So it's a great kind of way to kind of see and learn about the wine. Yeah. And if you don't have Instagram, we also have a YouTube page of um, LaRue Wines where you, you can see those videos as well. Perfect.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Katie. Thank you so much. It was fun. <laughs> It was a really fun interview to chat with Katie and hear about some of the challenges that she encountered while starting LaRue Wines and getting into wine consulting. Something that Katie said that really stuck with me was how she recommended that those starting a business recognize what they like doing in the business as well as what they don't enjoy doing and when financially able to consider outsourcing those things that you don't love to someone else. I would also add that you might consider outsourcing those tasks that you know you're not good at or investing in professional development to become better at those tasks. I tend to be a really frugal person when it comes to my business, and I always hesitate to spend money. So if you're a tightwad like me, sometimes it helps to remind yourself that spending money on the company can be a really sound investment, and it can actually lead to exponential growth for your company. Outsourcing a task that you hate will free up your time to focus on something else in the business that you actually enjoy doing. Remember that time truly is money in a business. So if you look at it from that context, then outsourcing the task to someone who will not only do it better, but also complete that task more quickly than you can, can actually save you money in the long run. It also frees you to focus on other tasks that you might be better at, which would be a better use of your time. The other thing that Katie discussed was the importance of recognizing that goals don't get accomplished in one fell swoop. Big goals happen steadily over time time through continual effort, right? Goals are achieved one step at a time, or as Katie says, in bite-sized increments. Looking at your big goals as smaller, actionable steps can also keep you from becoming overwhelmed. Personally, I needed that reminder this week. I've been focusing on building out my Evergrowth Coach brand by creating courses for job seekers and building a presence on YouTube with free videos. But it can be really overwhelming to look at the big picture. So working backwards, I wrote out all my big goals and broke them down to smaller bite-sized pieces rather than just getting stuck at create engaging YouTube videos as a goal which is a pretty big goal and, and has a lot of moving parts right I now have smaller more actionable daily goals of things like research how to create <laughs> engaging YouTube videos create a space to record high quality videos and write the script for a general job seeker tip video right or video number one seeing these bite-sized steps makes my goal a little less overwhelming and it means that I'll actually get more more done than just staring at the goal of build a YouTube channel for Evergrowth coach because that's just overwhelming for me. What about you? Do you have a big hairy audacious goal that just seems overwhelming right now? How could you break that goal down into smaller more manageable bite sized pieces that you could take steps toward each day? I'd love to hear what your goals are and how you've broken them down into smaller more manageable steps. You can tweet them to me at GFO podcast or DM me at go find out podcast on Instagram. I'd also love to hear what you think of this podcast. Hearing from you listeners lets me know that the content that I'm creating is actually making a difference for you. It's also great to hear that people are actually listening. (laughs) So feel free to reach out to me at GFO podcast on Twitter or at the go find out podcast on Instagram. You can also subscribe to the go find out podcast on your favorite podcast directory. And if you've been enjoying the show, definitely leave me a review on Apple podcasts. All right. That's it for today, folks. Join me next week when I speak with fly fisher and main guide Evelyn King. You'll hear what challenges that she's had to overcome to get into the world of fly fishing. Until then, go find out. Thanks for listening to the show today. I hope you found the information beneficial and that it helps you tackle your own go find out goals. You can find more episodes and the show transcripts at gofindoutpodcast.com. You can also let me know what you thought of the show by tweeting me at GFO Podcast or follow me on Instagram at GoFindOutPodcast. That's it for today. Now go find out.